one in five of Gen Z adults identify as LGBTQ. And so for every five people that are walking in to apply for a job at your store or your uh, firm, that's somebody who is a part of the community. What we know about Gen Z is that they also care a lot about the values and ethics of the places that they shop at, that they work for. And so an employer would really do well to have these extensive benefits in order to simply recruit the best. That's Raina Nelson, Senior Manager of the Workplace Equality Program at the Human Rights Campaign, an organization that strives to end discrimination against LGBTQ people and realize a world that achieves fundamental fairness and equality for all. Among the many ways Raina and their team of colleagues do this is through the Human Rights Campaign Foundation's Corporate Equality Index, a benchmarking tool on corporate policies, practices, and benefits pertinent to lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer employees, and a driving force for LGBTQ plus workplace inclusion. That index will be the subject of our conversation today, as well as what it means to employees to work for an inclusive organization. I'm Ellen Kelsey, and this is the Business Group on Health podcast, conversations with experts on the most relevant health and well-being issues facing employers. Today, my guests are Raina Nelson of the Human Rights Campaign and Joy Wilson, a member of HRC's Parents for Transgender Equality National Council. We discuss what an LGBTQ plus inclusive workplace looks like, the policies and practices that are now table stakes, the ones that are lagging, and real-life perspective on the importance of working for an employer that prioritizes equality. Today's episode is sponsored by League, the healthcare consumer experience platform trusted by the world's most forward-thinking organizations, including Unilever, Uber, Shopify, and Lush Cosmetics. Raina, Joy, welcome. I'm delighted to have you both join me today on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Yeah, we're thrilled. And to our listeners out there, this is a business group podcast first. We are featuring not one, but two esteemed guests, and it's going to be a great conversation. So let's go ahead and dive right in. And Raina, I'd love to start with you and learn a little bit more about the Corporate Equality Index that you and your team at the Human Rights Campaign have developed. Can you share with the audience what it is? Yeah, definitely. So yeah, like you said, my name is Raina Nelson. I use they, them pronouns. Um, I'm the senior manager for the Workplace Equality Program at the Human Rights Campaign Foundation. And the Corporate Equality Index is the national benchmarking tool for LGBTQ plus inclusive benefits, policies, practices in the workplace. So it's been going on for over 20 years now. We just celebrated our 20th year in January We work really closely with companies to evaluate them and do benchmarking on their policies and practices and how inclusive they are for the community. We also do education and consulting alongside running the survey. Oh, it's so impressive. And I I know it's quite extensive. You evaluate them across a number of different dimensions. And like you said, it's been 20 years running. So I'm curious, you know, generally, how many companies participate? And what are some of the criteria and things that you ask them about when they're completing the index? We're very lucky to increase our number of participants year over year, especially over the past few years by about 10% each year. But the most recent survey had 1,272 active participants. So that means that they completed a survey and there were some additional participants that we um, did independent research for. So over the last 20 years, the 
survey certainly has changed. We update our criteria every few years, but we generally focus on four distinct kind of buckets is usually what I call them. So workforce protections that has to do with like EEO and, and non-discrimination policy, then inclusive benefits and uh, internal education and best practices there, as well as external engagement in that corporate social responsibility. And so we evaluate companies across those kind of four buckets. I was so impressed when I was looking at it too, that you not only are doing this for employers in the United States, but all around the world. So of those 1000 plus participants, how many of them are outside the US? And is that an increasingly growing area for you as well? We're growing in a few kind of different ways globally. So the Corporate Equality Index primarily looks at the United States, but we have quite a few multinationals. So the majority of the Fortune 500 and even larger, the Fortune 1000 are on the CEI. And so a lot of those are multinational companies. And when it comes to workforce protections, we are evaluating that globally. Then we also have our Global Workplace Program, which does the Equidad surveys, which are primarily focused in South American countries. So we have Mexico, Brazil, Chile, and Argentina. We're always looking to expand further. There are a lot of similar organizations to us in different countries. So we try to see how we can work with them to develop a survey if there isn't already one there. That's great. And I imagine that's going to be a continued area of focus and probably a lot of nuance based on where in the world people are responding and what you might be seeing in their um answers to the questions on that index. So it'll be interesting to see how that continues to evolve. And I'm curious, what else is on that future roadmap? Are there other things that you're thinking about in the years ahead that you might add or modify within the index? You're kind of catching us at a good time. So at the beginning of this year, we announced that we would be updating the CEI criteria for the fifth time, I believe. We really focused on a few areas. So one was inclusive benefits, particularly around family formation. So things like adoption, surrogacy, IVF, things like that, as well as expanding our criteria for trans-inclusive benefits. That's been a really kind of key focus because we did a lot of work to get companies into the habit of covering these benefits, making sure they were available, but we're expanding it even further to serve the community. That's awesome. I want to dive into the family um, forming benefits and what you're seeing there specifically and what would you say are really kind of table stakes that everybody should be doing? And then what are some areas that maybe are overlooked and aren't being addressed that really should be top of mind for most uh, organizations? What we really try to do with the criteria is kind of establish baseline best practices. We always tell people it's kind of a floor, not a ceiling. And so I think what we're going to be requiring reflects that. So essentially companies that have these family formation benefits, so again, things like an adoption benefit, surrogacy, funds, IVF, et cetera, what we are requiring is that there be what we call parity. So if you have a benefit for spouses, for example, it should extend to those employees that have domestic partners as well. If they're available for different sex partners, for example, then it should also be available for those same-sex partners. So that's kind of where we're starting. But with benefits, I think the kind of key thing is always the generosity of the benefits. So it's great if a company is starting with, say, a few thousand dollars stipend for surrogacy, just for example. Surrogacy can be in the six figures. And so we're really encouraging companies to do is where they can, you know, make these benefits easier to access and more generous, just given that it can 
cost quite a bit of money for our community to start families. One area in particular that I know just from our own work here at the business group that we see a lot of large employers focused on is specifically related to transgender benefits. And we do an annual survey and we saw in our survey this year that most large employers are already covering transgender benefits to a certain extent. We actually had 74% of our respondents say that they were already covering transgender benefits with another 13% planning to do so within the next couple of years, which is encouraging, but I know that that's perhaps not as prevalent with smaller employers and there's still a lot of work to be done to truly have fully inclusive benefits for transgender individuals. So would love to hear from you about, you know, as you all think about transgender inclusive benefits, what are the major components from a health and well-being strategy that we should be thinking about and considering? So we really think about benefits, at least currently in kind of baseline care and then additional essential services and benefits. So when looking at that baseline care, we require for companies to get any credit to be offering mental health counseling, pharmaceutical benefits, so hormone replacement therapy, puberty blockers, as well as, you know, standard medical visits and lab procedures, and of course, medically necessary surgical procedures, particularly those for chest and breast surgeries, as well as genital surgeries. So those are what we call colloquially top and bottom surgeries. And so that's kind of the baseline, as well as ensuring that any sort of short-term leave policy or particularly short-term disability benefit that they have is not exclusionary of folks recovering from gender transition procedures, which we did find to be pretty common even just a few years ago. Beyond that, we're looking at additional essential services that unfortunately are are often excluded from basic plans. So things like facial feminization surgeries, Adam's apple reduction, hair removal that's necessary often for um, gender reassignment surgery, as well as things like voice modification therapy, and even things like travel and lodging, since oftentimes employees may face a very thin network of providers that are experts in their care and may need to travel within their state, outside of their state in order to access the care that they need. And that is like an extensive list. I'm sure you hardly covered all of the things that an employer should be considering. And that disability one is an important one that I think is probably not top of mind. They might be thinking about the health and medical and mental health aspects, but not the associated benefits that support individuals on this journey. And I'm curious, you know, I mentioned our large employer survey, but that's, you know, not all employers are large and with even in large employers, they might not be doing all of those things. So from your perspective, how prevalent are these benefits within organizations and are there certain industries where you see them more or less prevalent? I think it really varies. So things like the mental health care, hormone therapy, you know, pharmaceutical benefit, as well as kind of basic doctor's visits and lab procedures are typically covered across most what we call fully insured plans. So these are these off-the-shelf plans that large employers may have, but also smaller employers may have as well, because it just allows the insurer takes on a lot of the work in that case, which can be helpful for smaller employers. Where it can get a little bit tricky is when it comes to surgical procedures and things like travel and and out-of-network benefits. So we often find that there kind of is an idea of what trans healthcare encompasses that comes from folks who are cisgender. And the assumption is that the 
genital reassignment surgery is the most important. And so most plans will cover that. But then when you kind of get past that, it gets even less and less. And so it's pretty common for a plan to cover a bilateral mastectomy, breast removal for transmasculine people. But then you get into further things like chest reconstruction or nipple reconstruction that may be less likely, although a little higher up. And then Breast augmentation for trans feminine people is often less likely to be covered than mastectomy. Then you kind of go down the line of facial feminization surgery is not as common. Other procedures like body contouring or those things that kind of details or or, uh, really external appearances that often our community will say is key to kind of keeping them safe and, and feeling comfortable in their bodies are less likely to be covered in baseline plans. But we do largely deal with larger employers. And so the vast majority of the employers we deal with are self-insured. And so it really is up to them what they choose to cover. But often when they're speaking to their insurers, they maybe are not as knowledgeable about this care and consider it, quote unquote, cosmetic or experimental when neither of those things are necessarily the case. It's so important, as you said, I mean, really for somebody to feel like these benefits are designed for them and their needs and for them to feel truly supported in an inclusive way. All of these are really important components to an inclusive benefit. So I'm I'm so glad that you're illuminating and sharing these examples. And I know that often you and your team at HRC spend a lot of time with employers doing myth busting (laughs) and sharing with them and trying to really work with them to break down some of those myths and shed some light on maybe some perhaps misunderstandings. So can you share any examples of what some of those myth busting topics are that you cover with employers? Oh my gosh, I'd love to. So something that we hear a lot, especially for self-insured plans, because that means that the employer is kind of on the hook for paying the claims, is that trans healthcare is just, you know, very, very expensive. Although there is a kernel of truth to that in that some of the procedures can be expensive if you're kind of looking at them as an individual, but some of the myth busting we do are, you know, are thus. So One of them is that there is a difference between paying for a procedure out of pocket as an individual and having a procedure negotiated on your behalf by a larger plan. So you think of a a very large Fortune 20, Fortune 10 company, they have much more of a power to negotiate better rates, you know, on a group level than an individual trans person paying for something out of pocket. That's one thing that kind of reduces cost. Another thing is that Trans people are a relatively small percentage of the population. So right now we know trans people maybe represent somewhere between 1% and 2% of the adult population, and only about half of trans people go on to have like medical intervention for their transition beyond a social transition of changing names or way of dress or things like that. The utilization ends up being very, very low. And essentially, we find talking to employers that the additional cost is quite negligible. And so that's kind of the first myth. The second question we get a lot, and I'm laughing because it just sounds you know, kind of funny, is particularly when we talk about things like breast augmentation or facial feminization surgery, which I think maybe points to a little bit of a gendered aspect to this, is there's kind of the concern, you know, well, everybody's going to get boob jobs and nose jobs, you know, just because they feel a little uncomfortable. It's very easy to bust that myth because 
insurers have what they call clinical policies or medical guidelines or bulletins that outline the way that care is administered under the plan. For all of these procedures, there are honestly quite strict set of guidelines compared to care for cisgender individuals that you have to meet in order to get the care. And so there is basically no way unless a, a person, you know, meets criteria for a different disorder or procedure that's needed, you know, there's really no way for somebody to kind of just go willy nilly and, and get a boob job just because they feel like it. You know, uh, your doctor has to submit the claim. It has to, you have to meet quite a few bits of criteria, multiple letters from mental health professionals. You know, obviously you have to be 18 for the vast majority of these surgical procedures. There's quite an extensive requirement list. And Basically, anybody can find at least what the baseline requirements are by looking at the medical policy for any major insurer. They have it laid out in pretty extensive detail what is required to have this care. So I I think the last thing that we get into a lot, which is related, is the idea that trans-related care is inherently cosmetic. And I think that that kind of belies a general misunderstanding and possibly internalized or, or unconscious bias or bigotry that people get about trans people, which is that trans people are kind of not serious. They're getting these procedures because they are, you know, are, are vain or just want to look different for, you know, a suspicious or silly reason. But we know from now decades of research, this is a key part of both physical and mental health for trans individuals. People who transition experience up to 70%, 80% in some cases, increased quality of life, which of course is mental and physical. Even for youth using puberty blockers or, or hormone replacement therapy, you'll even find that quality of life among trans folks who have started their transition is even higher than their cisgender youth counterparts. And so it's not only that it's not cosmetic, these procedures, particularly the surgical ones, are considered what we would say are reconstructive. And that if your nose was broken and you got surgery to fix it, that wouldn't be cosmetic. You needed that done. And so similarly for trans individuals, say if someone doesn't have breasts and they're supposed to, that would be a reconstructive surgery, genital ones as well, things like that. And so we try to explain to companies, particularly with the help of resources from places like WPATH and TPATH, that these procedures are reconstructive and therefore medically necessary. And of course, that's backed up by quite a lot of um, high quality data and analysis. Those are great. Thank you. And we also know that there are some employers who are creatively demonstrating their transgender inclusive strategies or cultures within the organization. So any examples that you care to share along those lines? There are a small amount of companies that are covering a lot of things and understanding what I think is very key is that transition care, just like any sort of healthcare, is individualized. And so there are companies that we work with that understand, say we're covering this long list of procedures, not every single person is going to use every single one of those. But the key is that it's available so when maybe one or two or a small percentage of people do go to use it. They're not facing what we know a lot of our community does face, which is constant rejections from insurers, months and months of waiting for exception letters and, and documentation, um, something that puts a lot of stress and strain on an individual when they feel like they're kind of going up against what are often very, very large 
corporations, these insurers. And so companies that I've worked with that have good practices around this have things like benefits advocates that are well-versed in transition care and LGBTQ competency. They may be using concierge services such as Included Health or folks or ones like that do the work kind of for them to look for inclusive plans and negotiate with insurers to be more inclusive, as well as just knowing that there may be certain hiccups that folks face, such as the lack of an extensive provider network and having things like stipends to cover things like laser hair removal, which the expertise of which can vary from going to a nail salon all the way to a dermatologist with an advanced degree. And so companies that we work with that are are doing well kind of have an extensive set of benefits, have folks that are happy to advocate on behalf of their employees and have additional things in place such as stipends or wellness care allowances or things like that that can be used to pay for care in the event that it's difficult, it's rejected, or there is a narrow provider network. All right, let's shift gears. I want to ask about Gen Z. And we've seen data that indicate that a fairly substantial proportion of Gen Z identifies as LGBTQ. So curious from your perspective, why is this so important that employers pay attention to that population and especially relative to their programs and benefit offerings, future workforce, their dependence on current workforces plans? So how should employers be thinking particularly about Gen Z? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So what we know is about one in five of Gen Z adults. So that would be people 25 and younger, I believe, who identify as LGBTQ. That means that for every five people that are walking in to apply for a job at your store or your firm, that's somebody who is a part of the community. I guess I want to just take a quick kind of pause to address what that percentage really means. So oftentimes folks will see, oh, wow, like these young people, they're identifying as LGBTQ at much higher rates than adults or things like that. And so something must have happened that, you know, is making them identify this way or be so different. But what we generally know is that as LGBTQ plus visibility has increased and folks have become generally more tolerant of the community, it makes people feel like they can come out more. And so what we're seeing reflected is really the level of comfort that folks feel in society to come out, not necessarily an inherent increase in in these identities in any particular group. But what we know about Gen Z is that they also care a lot about the values and ethics of the places that they shop at, that they work for. And so an employer would really do well to have these extensive benefits in order to simply recruit the best. You're leaving up to 20% of potential employees or even consumers who are Gen Z on the table if you're not kind of making those investments into LGBTQ plus inclusive benefits and policies and practices. And so it's both the number of Gen Zers that are identifying this way, as well as the fact that we know that both Gen Z and millennials, which are about 10% LGBTQ, really care about the values that a company is putting forward publicly and as well as internally. I'm so glad you drew that distinction and about the comfort and, and people just feeling more supported in their ability to come forth as they truly are. And we know And certainly I wanted to ask you about that gender affirming care is not only life changing, but more importantly, life saving for transgender and non-binary youth. So can you 
speak to that. Speak to the life-saving aspect of the care and services for this population and why that is so critically important to not just being life-changing, but life-saving for them. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's a really great way to put it. It's both life-changing and life-saving. So we know that LGBTQ youth have, and particularly trans and non-binary youth, have an increased risk of suicidality, suicide attempts, depression, anxiety, and trauma that a lot of which stems from transphobic rhetoric and abuse that they're facing, often from the people closest to them, their family, their friends, classmates, coworkers. And what we know is that when folks are able to transition and able to get the care that they need, which I'll reiterate among youth is primarily social and mental health kind of care. So changing names, changing pronouns, working out their feelings with an experienced therapist or psychologist, these things increase the quality of life significantly. And it really has downstream effects on performance at school, at relationships with other individuals. And it's also an equity issue across race. So we know that trans people are disproportionately people of color, also disproportionately poor, um, unemployed, you know, those sorts of things. And a lot of that, again, has to deal with transphobic violence and harassment. When folks have access to this care, which is often affirming in a social and mental health way, it just makes such a huge difference. I believe the numbers of suicidality and depression and anxiety among LGBTQ youth, particularly trans and non-binary youth, is somewhere north of 70%. And it's really increased and become very acute in our current moment where we have this kind of contradictory thing happening where there's increased visibility for the community, but without kind of systemic change, we've seen that it's kind of led to a backlash um, that's culminated in, in quite a bit of not just social change, but um, legislative and legal change that is having a disproportionate impact on trans and non-binary youth. I'm speaking with Raina Nelson of the Human Rights Campaign. When we return, We'll be joined by Joy Wilson, who's part of HRC's Parents for Transgender Equality National Council. Founded in 2014, League is the platform technology company powering next-generation healthcare consumer experiences. Employers like Unilever, Uber, Shopify, and Lush Cosmetics build on League to deliver high-engagement, personalized healthcare experiences employees love. League's platform helps enterprise organizations consolidate point solutions and solve three of their biggest business challenges, the outdated health and benefits experience, rising costs, and poor employee health. Today, League supports millions of people in living healthier lives, and they're on a mission to change the lives of millions more worldwide. To learn more about how League is powering the digital transformation of healthcare, visit League.com. That's L-E-A-G-U-E dot com. At this point, I would love to bring in our second guest on the podcast. And one of the wonderful things, Raina, that you and your team at HRC does is that you bring together a council of parents of transgender children. And um, we're fortunate to have Joy, who is one of those parents with us today. So Joy, let's bring you into the conversation. And I'd love to get your perspective on, on many of these topics, but first, if you're willing to share your family's story, I think that might be helpful for some context for the audience as well. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. 
So as you said, my name is Joy Wilson. I use she, her pronouns. And I am, as you also mentioned, on PTEC, Parents for Trans Equality Council with HRC. And that began with my daughter, basically at two and a half, telling us who she was and stating she was a girl. And that was very complicated concept to wrap our heads around as parents, thinking that we had a son. And it ultimately took six years for us to grasp it. And our daughter was patient and persistent. Uh, so kudos to her. She publicly transitioned at the age of eight. And I can tell you prior to that, there was many behavioral problems and concerns that we had and spent a lot of time trying to get support and not knowing where to go. And we had so many different concerns thinking maybe she had tics and maybe this is Tourette's and um, she was self-harming. And to see a young child, young child, four, five, six years old with these behaviors is pretty hard to watch as a parent. So we started by seeking mental health support for gender expansive kids. We sort of could center it around gender related, and I didn't have much more knowledge than that at the time. And we, at the time, had a large, well-known HMO for my family's health insurance, and there were no in-network specialists. They didn't provide a referral to an out-of-network network specialist that I had requested. So we went to the only option that they provided, and long story short, CPS was called on us. So when Child Protective Services is called on you while you're trying to seek support for your child, it's pretty traumatic. Ultimately, there was no report, there was nothing, there was no wrongdoing, and that ultimately was not an issue, but as you can imagine, was really traumatic for our family. And ultimately, they realized their error, and by they, I mean this HMO, and they also recognized that they were clearly ill-equipped for this care. And so what I'm really happy to say that even though we went through a difficult time with that, that three years later, that say, same company had opened up the first of two health clinics specializing in transgender healthcare here in Oregon. So our mistakes are how we learn. And I'm grateful that we were able to pave the way in some ways for things to be easier for other families. I can tell you that as soon as we were getting the care that our child needed, all of the behavioral problems disappeared. This isn't hyperbole. I mean, the next day, the day she socially transitioned and started living as herself, it was night and day. Went from a very unhappy child with a lot of behavioral issues to just a kid going to school, playing with friends, learning lessons in class. It was a beautiful thing. And as Rena mentioned, it's largely just a social transition. This was a matter of changing pronouns, a different name, some new clothes. It's pretty simple at the beginning. I think that that's when you talk about myth busting, that's a large misunderstanding that there's this influx of hormones and medical procedures. Um, and with trans youth, it can be pretty simple in a social transition. But my work professionally is HR, and so I've been able to experience the benefits, the employee benefits from both the employer side and the employee side. And so that's largely influenced a lot of my perspective and expanded my perspective, and I'm really grateful for that. Well, just thank you so much for sharing your personal story and your family's journey. I mean, it really, it brings it home. Some 
of us in the field talk about it from a theoretical perspective. And we know how important it is theoretically and in practice to do these things. But when you are a family living this and are on this journey, how equally heartbreaking, but heartwarming to hear your story, it can be, but also, you know, equally difficult and fulfilling and liberating. Well, I've had a difficult time navigating insurance. I really want to speak less to our family's specific experience, but what I learned and then applied from my personal experience to my professional work. And because the personal story of navigating health insurance and care for our child has been rather difficult. But on the flip side, being able to apply positive changes and make improvements in my employers and other employers that I've worked with throughout the years. Um, that's the part that I'm more, I'd like to focus on because that's the positive aspect. And so we all know that, you know, when employers invest in their employees, you see returns in the form of company loyalty or quality of work, and ultimately bottom line. So it pays to invest in employees. And that also includes employees' families. And so when we're looking at benefits for employees and their trans family members, I would say the key takeaway, the key important thing is to just do preemptive research because it's not if, it's when you're going to have an employee with questions about trans-affirming care coverage. So I recommend proactively survey employee resource groups to gather employee needs and seek out LGBTQ consultants to review your policies for inclusive and affirming coverage. So there's an example, a very specific example I'd like to give. Several years ago, a large global company known for its progressive and innovative culture had a quote unquote baptism by fire in supporting an employee who transitioned in the workplace. And this was the first time experience for this company. To their credit, they went above and beyond in their commitment to educate themselves and create a supportive environment for this employee. So first and foremost, we can take away that they cultivated a workplace in which this employee first felt safe, that they were able to come to HR for support. So that's the first thing the company should be striving for. Secondly, the company listened attentively and learned from this employee, which benefited future trans and non-binary employees too. And it ultimately expands the overall employee experience with company-wide education and awareness. So inclusive workplaces attract more diverse talent pool, which translates to more ideas, problem solving, innovation, growth, et cetera, et cetera. In addition to public facing changes, such as, I don't know, installing new non-gendered signage for dozens of single stall bathrooms, this company also wanted to make certain that their health benefits were trans inclusive. And Raina had mentioned baseline care, that there's this kind of large focus on gender confirmation surgery. And that's something that people associate with trans-affirming care. And as I mentioned before, a lot of it is very social oriented and just for mental health. And that focus is just as important, if not more to many. This company did so many things right, but it's worth noting that this example, in, and in many cases, these changes are reactionary, not proactive. I come in later and I review the company's benefits coverage for trans-affirming care from the lens of a parent with a transgender child. And unbeknownst to this company, their progressive and supposedly inclusive policy actually carved out and omitted coverage for transgender children. 
And this wasn't an intentional omission by the company. It was just simply not part of the limited scope that they were looking into because it gets very sensitive when people think about medical care for youth and that assumption that there is medical intervention with youth. As mentioned, social is the focus, but there are some things like puberty blockers and cross hormones eventually, but so much of it is just about pausing and buying time as a child develops. And this plan actually carved out that uh, it had a specific language that the care was available to anyone 18 over. Well, puberty blockers are not, not valuable or effective when someone is 18. So it was just a simple thing, but you know the company just didn't have awareness of that. And so this is where I like to just say that there's such an importance to hire LGBTQIA consultants to cover all the bases and proactively dig into policies and look at it from a broad lens, you know, seek out employee feedback before the employees and their families come to you with these needs. Those were great examples. And I've got a question that I'd like to pose to each of you. And it's really a little bit of a gear shift here, but we're starting to see that there are some legal challenges cropping up within various states at various levels and various components of that that potentially put at risk or jeopardize services of transition care for youth. I imagine within the communities that some of these laws or looming laws are creating some level of fear and anxiety and uncertainty within these families. So from your perspective, what are some things that employers can do that would demonstrate their allyship and support to transgender families in the face of some of these emerging laws at the state level? Raina, let's start with you. I've had a lot of these conversations recently with companies, you know, being legitimately concerned about whether or not they will end up breaking some sort of law. For example, in in Florida, your listeners may or may not know, essentially their Department of Health has started the process of putting in place a rule that would ban gender affirming care for youth, period. Puberty blockers, cross hormones, but also if you kind of read closely, they also are very skeptical of even mental health care and social transition interventions. And so when I talk to these companies, they're often very concerned that, oh, we're just not going to be able to cover this anymore, that sort of thing. And it's a little bit complicated because some of the purpose of these laws and bills is to create confusion and a chilling effect. And so a lot of them are not super specific about what they're targeting, very few mention insurance providers. But, you know, as a legal protection, it's likely that some of these providers may stop offering this care preemptively. And what we told employers is now is not a time to back out and back down because things are looking a little bit scary. LGBTQ plus people deal with scary times constantly. It's really time for employers to step up whether it be making their voices heard. HRC and many other LGBTQ plus organizations have been trying to engage the business community on these issues to make their voices heard, to let folks know this is bad for business. But we've also been encouraging employers to speak to their insurers and understand where they're at and try to expand care even in the face of these issues. Because, um, What we know is that simply kind of giving way to one demand 
when it comes to, you know, extremists or those who are bigoted, very rarely stops them from making additional demands. It often makes them feel emboldened to make more. And you see this with Florida, for example, you know, the panic has all been around trans kids, but more and more states are kind of sneaking in. Oh, you need to wait till you're 21. You need to wait till you're 25. There needs to be a waiting period. And so we tell employers now is not the time to back down on this, but to stand up for their employees. Many employers have it in their values, inclusion, diversity, acceptance, tolerance, and your values really matter most when things get hard. When the going gets tough, that's when you kind of show your allyship. And so now is really a time for employers to be speaking up and speaking out even more. Some have, but a lot have not, and we could really use their support. Incredibly well said. All right. Thank you. It's Joy, same question to you. So as you mentioned, yeah, in the last year, there have been more anti-trans bills introduced to state legislatures than like over the last 10 years combined. Companies need to acknowledge, I think first and foremost, just need to acknowledge anti-trans legislation exists and to publicly share support for their transgender employees and families. That is zero cost right there. That's just creating culture and commitment to their employees. That would be my first thing. And pay attention to who your company interacts with, whether that's vendors and clients, et cetera, and their stance on transgender rights and how that may affect your employees who interface with them. So mostly it's an awareness. And then, of course, building a culture that proactively supports transgender rights in the workplace. You can't necessarily control what's going out and going on statewide. What goes on in the walls of your company, you can. But companies need to be public and take a stance about their support for LGBTQ, in this case, our specific conversation about trans employees. All right. Well, great. I'd like to maybe round up here with a couple last questions for each of you. And the first one is, if there's one thing that you would like employers to take away from this conversation, what would it be? Joy, I'll start with you on this one. One thing that is so hard. Um, (laughs) I'm going to take it in a very simple anecdotal example because I think it's the human stories that really affect people and touch people's hearts. And so one of the things that has been the most meaningful for me is just the principals and colleagues paying attention to headlines that may not affect their family, but deeply affect mine. And again, this doesn't have to do with policies and any big costs, but I do think companies should put their money where the mouth is. But just one day, my principal suggesting I take a day off after I spent a tough day dealing with anti-trans state legislators or Our facilities director one time sent me a celebratory text when um, he read a headline about our senator endorsing the Equality Act. And one of the most touching moments, which is such a simple thing, was a condolence text that an employee sent me when Amy Stevens died. She's the Michigan woman at the center of the transgender civil rights case with the Supreme Court. Just that my coworkers and people in my company acknowledged things that were important to my family. Could they change anything or do anything in that moment? No, but just being seen. And I've heard that message from so many LGBTQ folks, because of course I'm speaking from a lens as a white cisgender straight woman. So I am not speaking for the trans community at all, 
but I have heard echoed again and again a theme of being seen. And when we see trans people, we pay attention to laws and workplaces and all the things that affect trans people in their day-to-day living. So that is my very long-winded one thing. Great. Really unbelievably compelling and important and meaningful, clearly just to hear you speak about it, how much that meant to you. So thank you for sharing that. Raina, your turn. What's the one thing you'd like employers to take away from the conversation today? Yeah, absolutely. And I really, really appreciate your story, Joy, and just you know, hearing your your background as well. But I think for me, with all the conversations I've had with companies, is that trans and non-binary people are are people. We, you know, we're just normal human beings. We go to work, we pay our taxes, we feed our cats, you know, all these sorts of things. And just like everybody else, we need care. And that care is just as medically necessary as getting a hip replacement or or getting heart attack medication. And it's literally just as important. It's not a separate type of care all the way over there. It's not something that we can kind of waffle on or make a debate about. These are people's lives, my life and the life of Joy's child, of people's children and regular people all over the country and around the world. It's not a debate. It's not an abstract intellectual conversation. Like we mentioned before, it's very much life or death. And it's very, very simple, especially for larger companies to put these benefits in place it is incredibly difficult as an individual trans person, even with somebody who had pretty decent health care, it is very difficult to deal with the brunt of an insurer as an individual, constant denials, paying for things out of pocket, dealing with folks who are frankly not competent to speak to you about your care, kind of lording that over you. And so employers at this point, we've done this for a long time. Trans care is necessary. You should cover it. We have 1557. A lot of baseline care uh, covers it. So do the work to get it covered. So that's definitely what I would leave companies with. All right. Great. And one last question for each of you. As you look to the future, what gives you hope? Oh, I get so much hope from the younger generation. The younger generation employees, this whole great resignation, everyone's talking about this wave of employees quitting. But I really see it as this new wave of candidate and employee behavior that we can pay attention to and learn from. I've heard it said before as the great realization, and I like that better. No longer employees willing to work for companies that don't do the authentic work or walk the walk with their values. And this goes beyond policies on paper and statement posters on the wall in the break room. Employees today want company actions that they can see and feel, and they're That wanting is turning into expecting, and that is forcing employers to really take a hard look at what they need to keep employees around. So I am given so much hope by the younger generation of employees and the, quote, great realization. Great. All right. And Raina, last word to you on this one. What gives you hope? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm going to have to steal uh, Joy's answer is that uh, young people getting into the workforce give me a lot of hope. I have a, a sibling who's 10 years younger than me, so she's 17, and she demands so much more than I did at her age. And she has learned to know herself so much more than I did at my age. 
between that and seeing so many workers take back their power in things like union drives and the great realization, as Joy said, that just makes me very, very hopeful that people aren't standing idly by and won't stand idly by as um, many of the most powerful people in our country kind of attack our community. And that gives me a lot of hope, especially on difficult days. Well, Joy and Raina, gosh, what a compelling and important conversation. The work you're both doing is vital, critically important. We greatly appreciate you sharing your stories with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with Raina Nelson of the Human Rights Campaign and Joy Wilson, a member of HRC's Parents for Transgender Equality National Council, about the importance of LGBTQ plus inclusive workplaces. For more information on the Corporate Equality Index, visit hrc.org. I'm Ellen Kelsey. This podcast is produced by Business Group on Health with Connected Social Media. To keep the conversation on this important topic going, please consider sharing this episode with a colleague or friend.